You may be seated. We have two passages of Scripture to read tonight. First of all, from Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22, and then Romans 11, 1 through 32. I actually think I'm going to split these readings up. We'll consider, uh, we'll read and then consider Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 first, and then we'll come back uh, for the second passage and make some uh, comments on that. While you're finding Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 in your Bibles, I just want to say something about the Grimsley family. It's been my pleasure for several years to know that family. Uh, Danielle Grimsley grew up as a Mormon, uh, not a practicing Mormon. It's, uh, they have a term for it called a Jack Mormon. Uh, and that's how she grew up. But she, uh, she started seeing this young man from the Concho Church named Josh Grimsley, uh, his parents were somewhat concerned, so I talked to them about this, and, uh, and uh, Danielle was willing to come to church. And she came to church, and, and one of the first Sundays that she was there, it was a Sunday, I was out there, uh, I was, you think I like to commute to church a lot? I actually was going out every month to Concho's, like a 14-hour drive or something like that. And, you know, not, maybe qu- not quite that long. It's over 600 miles. Um, but I gave a Sunday school lesson on covenant theology. And she talked to me afterwards and she said, that's the first time the gospel has made sense to me. And I thought, well, you know, an obscure thing like covenant theology and it made the gospel make sense. What she meant was the gospel exists in this framework of God's covenants. God's covenants give a structure to the gospel, that, uh, and, and it helped her understand some basic principles about the gospel that she had been unclear of. So she eventually made a profession of faith in the, in the Concho Church. She and Josh got married. They started raising their family. They have four children now. Now, Josh comes from an interesting family. Uh, Josh's mother is a retired judge. If you know Concho, uh, the area around Concho, There are a lot of meth cookers in that area, and she has put many of them in jail, uh, which means the the family lives with some threats from some of these people who either have friends or when they get out of jail, they make threats. The Grimsley family takes their Second Amendment rights very seriously, and so they are armed even at home. Uh, And it's in part because of these threats. I was staying at their house one night, and I looked up on the wall. There was this very interesting-looking firearm. It was uh, long. It kind of looked like a shotgun, but it had a barrel on it. I mean, not not the barrel, but a a, a, uh, drum on it. I said, what is that? I said, well, we, have a, we had a shotgun, and we made some modifications. It'll take now a 50-round drum, and it's semi-automatic. That gives a whole new definition to the term street sweeper. I, I, it, it does. Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's an interesting family. They will have some adjustments in Uganda, but it will not be a whole lot. Uh, if you were here during the congregational meeting, you saw the, there, there was a picture of Concho and a picture of Uganda. They look almost exactly the same. <laughs> anyway, 
Uh, I hope you'll remember next week in the offering and remember the Grimsley family in your prayers. They are a wonderful family. Josh is an elder in the church at Concho. Uh, went with him last year to his first general assembly, and he enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, both all the family is making great progress in the Lord and in the Reformed uh, faith. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians 2. You've already turned there because I've been talking. But uh, Ephesians 2, chapter uh, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near to the, by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And here we end Ephesians 2. I noticed coming across my news feeds, you know, you get those, you check your phone every morning and, and you, you go to one of those sites that aggregates news articles together and I started seeing shortly after, well, even on October 7th, articles being written in Christian publications talking about the relationship of Israel and the church and uh, uh, talking about how Christians should respond to the terrorist attacks on October 7th, the Hamas attacks. And the more we learn about those attacks, the more horrible uh, they, uh, they are, they, they appear to be, and uh, understandably there is a, a war now to try to wipe out this terrorist organization, Hamas. But these raise questions. What is, in fact, the relationship of the church and Israel? I would actually like to challenge right up front some of the, the terminology that we use in that question. We, we always phrase that question, the, the relationship of the church and Israel. And I would like us to refocus those, uh, the question and say, what about the relationship of Jews and Gentiles in God's plan of redemption? Not so much the church versus Israel, the church as different from Israel, 
but Jews and Gentiles. And that's how Paul approaches it in this passage, and also, to, for the most part, in the passage in Romans 11 that we will be reading later. A couple of preliminary points. We use the word Israel. We should keep in mind that we use it in the sense that the Bible does. The Old Testament nation descended from Abraham, to whom God made several covenants and promises, and through whom he brought his redemptive plan to fruition in the world. It is through the Israelites that the Messiah was brought into the world. Through the Israelites that the, the concept of faith in a true and living God was was uh, fully revealed. There were people who believed in God outside of Israel, uh, but through the descendants of Abraham, God revealed his word to the world. When we think of Israel in that biblical sense, we realize it's not, it's not identical to the present-day nation of Israel. Still, not identical does not mean totally different. There are connections. The modern nation serves as a focal point for the descendants of the ancient people, even while most of the people who live in the modern nation of Israel believe nothing. They're completely secular. They're not even Jews except through a lineage. I had the pleasure of meeting a Messianic Jew not long ago, Who's, who has taken it upon himself to try the, as best he can to bring the gospel to Jewish people. And he says, it's so frustrating. They don't even know what they're supposed to believe. And I said, and I agreed with him. And my experience is it's almost like we have to teach them from the Old Testament what their religion was supposed to be, because they don't know. It's truly, as Paul says, that there is a veil that is still over their hearts and eyes, and only Christ can take that veil away. But Paul generally uses the terms Jews and Gentiles, not Israel and the church. So let's, let's uh, try to focus on that paradigm that Paul presents us with. Second point, a school of theology called dispensationalism, and probably many of you grew up in dispensational homes or dispensational churches. I did, even though it was a Presbyterian church, it was heavily influenced by dispensationalism. If you had perfect attendance in high school, you got a new Schofield Bible with, the, with updated study notes, all right? Main problem with the Schofield Study Bible is that people confuse the notes with the text of Scripture and think the notes are as authoritative as the Scripture is. And they've learned a whole different system of thought, a system of theology as a result of that. The foundational principle of dispensationalism, which comes into being in the mid middle of the 19th century, the foundational principle of dispensationalism is that God has two separate people and they must always be separate. He has the nation of, he has the, the Jews, Israel, and he has the church. Israel is an earthly people destined for earthly blessings. The church is God's spiritual people destined for spiritual blessings. That, according to Charles Ryrie, who for many years was the chief dispensational theologian in America, taught at Dallas Seminary, 
is the foundational principle of dispensationalism. By the way, it's why one of the reasons why they stress what they call the secret rapture, where the church is taken out of the world, and then for the next seven years, God deals with Israel. Well, the church has to be taken away because now God is going to deal with his earthly people, so his spiritual people have to be removed because you can never mix the two. Now, this raises a whole lot of questions which I don't have time to get into. Let's just say that this is erroneous, and it should be clear that this is in error when we read the text that we just read in, Hebrew, or in Ephesians chapter 2. God has one body, one people, and, he is bring, and through Christ, he has brought people from, uh, for, he has brought Jews and Gentiles together. The two are one new man in Christ. We'll get into that a little bit later. Sometimes, though, even uh, there's other groups, though, and, and sometimes even Reformed people who have somewhat carelessly, I think, in my opinion, said that the church has pl replaced Israel as the people of God. I think some have said this careful, carelessly, not really thinking through, but others have actually developed what has become known as replacement theology, which holds, in fact, God is done with the Jews. There is only the church, which has now inherited all the promises originally given to the Jewish people in a spiritual form, not those earthly promises. I think this view actually has the same problem that dispensational has. Uh, dispensationalism has, a bit different, but it still holds that there have been two people and are two people differentiated by time, but still divided. There's still a problem there. Our passage focuses not on Israel and the church, but on Jews and Gentiles. What is God doing? You'll notice, as we read from Ephesians chapter 2, that the passage is addressed primarily to the Gentiles in the church at Ephesus. There was a synagogue in Ephesus. Actually, when we were in Ephesus a few months ago, we saw uh, evidence of the synagogue that used to meet right behind the town library. That's where Paul goes first when he comes to Ephesus and preaches to the Jews. Remember, Paul says on a few occasions, the gospel comes to the Jew first and then to the Greek or then to the Gentiles. Paul would go to preach to this, at the synagogue first. Some, uh, some would believe. Some always wanted to hear a little bit more. And some, perhaps the majority, rejected Paul's message. And so we're told in the book of Acts that after Paul gets run out of the synagogue in Ephesus, he goes, and the, the infant church of Ephesus, the first Presbyterian church of Ephesus, if I may, meets in a school, a school of Tyrannus. It's interesting, uh, Marilyn and I actually walked down those streets where those things are, or were, and we can still see evidence of some things. You can still see the library. You can see carved in the stone by the library uh, a sign that indicated a Jewish synagogue met there. Paul writes to these Gentile believers, and he's writing about the unity of the church. Notice in the first chapter of Ephesus, 
We often think Ephesus is all about election, predestination, the sovereignty of God. That's actually the foundation for what Paul is actually getting to in the letter, which is this great mystery that God always intended to bring Jews and Gentiles together in one faith, in one body, through the Lord Jesus Christ. But the foundation of that is laid in the doctrine of election. There are elect Jews and elect Gentiles. Election, or we talk about God's sovereign grace, his grace, his, his saving grace, his electing grace. That's how I spell grace, E-L-E-C-T-I-O-N. I'm a terrible speller, but that's what it is all about. Here's a quote for you to think about. I won't tell you right off the bat who, who says this, or who wrote this quote. But I think it captures something. And it actually is looking to the future, and it's actually dealing with a, the issue that we'll take up next in, in Romans 11. What about the future of Jews and Gentiles? But you can see where the writer of this has relied on several passages of Scripture. He writes this, Oh, to see the sight. Next to Christ coming in the clouds, the most joyful. Our elder brethren, the Jews, and Christ fall upon one another's necks and kiss each other. They have been long asunder. They will be kind to one another when they meet. O day, O longed for, and lovely day dawn. O sweet Jesus, let me see that sight which will be as life from the dead. Thee and thy ancient people in mutual embrace. Anyone want to take a guess who wrote those words? Oh, nobody's raising their hand. They're written by a man named Samuel, Samuel Rutherford. He's one of the founders of Scottish Presbyterianism in the 1600s. Samuel Rutherford had great influence in the Westminster Assembly. He himself was... He want, they, they, they chose him as a commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, but he could not go. He sent a young protege in his place and representing him at the assembly. Uh, but he, he and many of the Scottish Presbyterian uh, men at the assembly held this view that while we might see today a remnant of elect Jews there is a promise that there will be a greater outpouring of the Spirit. And as part of the sequence of events at the end of the age, we'll see a great turning of Jewish people to the Lord. He's not alone in this. And it really doesn't matter if you're a pre-millennialist, a post-millennialist, or an amillennialist. You can find people all through those three camps that believe this to be true. Samuel Rutherford also is one of, the, one of the people who made great developments in covenant theology. And he's relying on scripture to formulate that framework, that conceptual framework on which the gospel hangs. Well, here's another one. Question 191, that probably tells you exactly where this is coming from. How many catechisms do you know that have at least 191 questions? Hmm. 
What do we pray for in the second petition? It's on the Lord's Prayer. In the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. Love that. The gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, and the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. It's in our larger catechism that we are to pray for the calling of the Jews. Huh, how many of you knew that before? It's in our larger catechism. It's one of the things implied that Jesus taught when he said, thy kingdom, we are to pray for the coming of the kingdom. This is not a strange doctrine. It is an ancient doctrine. In fact, I could go back to the early church fathers, some like Irenaeus or... Justin Martyr, Tertullian, who believed these things as well. Because they founded their understanding of this relationship of Jew and Gentile on these scriptures that we read and study tonight. Ephesians chapter 2, God's plan, the great mystery that Paul talks about, was that God would bring the Gentiles in to become heirs of the promises. And out of elect Jew and Gentile, he would build one new body, one man. Notice how he describes this, though. He describes the state of the Gentiles before the gospel came to them, before Christ came and the gospel came to them. He describes them this way. You are of the uncircumcision in the flesh. That is, you have no outward sign of God's covenant with, with Israel. You are outsiders. You're on the outside looking in. You have been kept out in God's plan. You are separate from Christ. Why? Salvation is of the Jews. The messianic stream of prophecies and fulfillment come through the Jewish people. You have been separated from that. You are not part of that commonwealth of Israel, and therefore you are not heirs of the covenants of the promise. You have no hope, and you are without God in the world. Have a nice day. What a description. And he's writing to these Gentiles and says, this is what your, your status was before God, prior to the coming of Christ and prior to the coming of the gospel to you, which you have now believed. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. And you had no hope and were without God in the world. What a sad state of affairs. But of course, he doesn't stop there. Now, after Christ, after the gospel has come, after the faith has come to them, he describes the effect of this on these Gentile believers. But I want you to notice something as I review this with you. It all seems to be in the context of what, what was true for Israel, and still may be. Now you who were strangers, locked out, kept from the covenant signs and kept from the covenant promises, now you have been brought near. You've been brought in. Christ has made peace between Jew and Gentile. And through Christ, that the wall of partition that 
kept the Gentiles out. And there was a literal physical wall about three and a half feet high in the temple that separated the court of Israel from the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could come into that outer court. By the way, that's where the portico was. That's where Peter preached in the New Testament, you know, in the book of Acts and so forth, that court of Gentiles. But then there was this wall about three and a half feet high. Armed guards stood at that wall to keep all Gentiles out. You couldn't go in. That's what Paul is referring to when he says he broken down the wall of hostility. Guess who's coming to dinner tonight? <laughs> the Gentiles are. The Gentiles are coming in. We can come in now and worship the true and living God. The laws that kept us separate have been abolished in Christ. Those ceremonial laws, those purification laws that taught the people of Israel that if you were a Gentile, you were unclean. You weren't even supposed to sit down to dinner with the, with the Gentiles. But now... Those laws that spoke of the enmity between Jew and Gentile have been abolished in Christ. We are now reconciled to God in one body. Both Jew and Gentile reconciled together in one body, but reconciled to not only each other, but to God primarily. And you are no longer strangers and aliens. Notice, the, but behind these statements is the imagery that through Christ, we come in. It's not that God now has plan B and starts a new institution called the church. What Paul is subtly telling us is the church is the continuation, the expansion of Israel, the expansion of those promises and covenants, and the fulfillment in Christ has led to the expansion of Israel, of the Jewish people, so that now Gentiles are inheriting the promises. That's why Paul in another place says that it is we who believe who are the children of Abraham. He doesn't say you've started a new, a new, uh, a new redemptive line. He says you've been brought in and are now part of this line that flows from Abraham. Only you are children of Abraham by faith. It's why in another place, Paul can say about believing Christians and the church, you are the Israel of God. Not that there's an entirely new institution that God has started with a new plan, but that others have been brought in. There is a contiguous connection, if you will, between Israel and the church in this respect. And it involves Gentiles coming in and being included in the redemptive work of Christ, uh, of God. Christ has laid the foundation for reconciliation between Jew and Gentile and both reconciled to God the Father. He has brought those who were far away into the worship of the living God. He has, even through the Jews, even though the Jews were unbelieving, laid the foundation for their re-inclusion. And I would say this is the key, election then becomes the key to this. Well, it's time to go shift now to Romans 11. So go back in, into your Bibles and find Romans 11. This is all kind of anticipating some of the things that Paul will write about in Romans 11. 
Romans 9, 10, and 11 form a, a section in the book of Romans where Paul deals with the subject of what about Israel. It's not by chance that it follows that incredibly beautiful and powerful statement at the end of Romans chapter 8, where Paul talks about the unbreakable love of God. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And he lists all the possibilities. And there is nothing in heaven and on earth that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And I can picture as Paul's letter is being read somewhere, maybe even at Ephesus, someone in the back of the congregation waves their hand and says, but Paul, what about the Jews? They were God's people, and God took his love away from them. God has abandoned them. How does God dealing with the Jews fit in with your claim that nothing can break God's love? And he spends three chapters answering that question. And really, it's, it comes in that context of defending his claim about God's unbreakable love. In chapter 9, he deals with, the, with the, that question from the standpoint of election. He will have mercy on those he has mercy. He's God's sovereign election. He talks about the Old Testament examples of election. He talks about Pharaoh and how Pharaoh was hardened. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and those whom he will harden, he hardens. God's sovereignty over all. In chapter 10, he talks about the issue of faith. And he, and he says, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they believe on him of whom they've never heard? And how will they hear of him unless someone tells them? And how will someone tell them unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. In Romans 11, Paul takes a, a different angle. And he talks about this relationship from the standpoint of God's plan brought about in the course of history. What is, what, is cert, what is made certain in God's eternal decree has to come to fruition in the course of history. And so that's what Romans 11 is about. Let's read it together. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And there's the question that arises. It looks like God has rejected his people. It looks like the Jews have fallen and, and will never come back. But notice his answer to that, and it's this very strong Greek double negative. You've heard this probably, meganoito. Now, in the ESV, it's really weakened the force of that when, he says, when it says, by no means, which is still a pretty strong statement. In the King James, it would be, God forbid. In the Greek, it's basically this. Don't even begin, never even begin to think that. <laughs> May it not ever be. And he says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Foreknowledge in this biblical sense is a way of saying whom he has loved. Whom he has loved, whom he has called, whom he has chosen in his grace. He has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Notice the reference back to election. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, and this is kind of saying the same question a different way, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Same double negative. By no means. God forbid. Don't even think that. May it never be. Now, why would Paul give such a strong answer to that question? It's because Paul knows that God does not lie. And the implication that Israel has fallen forever, stumbled forever, and cannot get back up, that he has rejected his people that he foreknew, the implication is that God made a covenant and didn't keep it. The, covenant, the covenants that God made with Israel that are subsumed under the, the broader term of the covenant of grace, they cannot be annulled. Israel never kept the covenant. They were stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. Oh, just like you and me. You think things would be different if you and I were Jews living at the time of Jesus? If God had not worked in our hearts, we would have been pounding nails into the cross as well. It's grace that makes the difference. But Paul is asking these questions and giving really strong answers to the idea that God has rejected them or that God or that they have stumbled to the point where they cannot get back up. And yet, that is what we seem to see. Paul's strong answers, I believe, are based on the fact that God keeps his covenant even when we do not. That's what makes it a covenant of grace. Let me ask you another question. Since you professed your faith in Christ, how many of you have kept God's promises and God's commandments perfectly. You're all admitting that you are covenant breakers. Your silence tells me that you have just convicted yourselves of breaking faith with God. But I want to remind you, praise God, my faith is weak, but his love is unbreakable. His covenant promises stand in the Old Testament, he tells Israel, you will be taken captive. All the curses of the law will come upon you. And when you are in foreign nations and when you are bowed down under the yoke of slavery, I will come to you again. And I will gather you from the name. They'd already broken the covenant. They'd already disbelieved God's word, ignored the prophets. And God says, I will not do this 
because you're worthy, I will do it for my name's sake, which is a way of saying I'm protecting my own reputation as the covenant-keeping God. Okay, back to the text. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. God had a plan. This didn't just happen. Dispensationists like to say that God brought the gospel to the Jews, but when they rejected Jesus, he had to institute, we sometimes call it plan B, and the church is plan B. No. This was the plan from the very beginning. This was the plan from the very beginning. And it was done so as to make Israel jealous. Yes, it was done to bring Gentiles in, but it was also done to make Israel jealous. Why are they jealous? Because all these strangers and aliens who we had nothing to do with and count as inferior people, now they're all streaming in to claim our promises. That's what Paul means when he says to make them jealous. Wait a minute. This is, wrong. This is not right. The Gentiles are inheriting our promises? Wait a minute. What's wrong with us? Why aren't we inheriting the promises? Maybe that Jesus was right. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will the full inclusion mean Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, even as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? That's what was in that quote from Samuel Rutherford. Think about this. In a little while, Paul is going to uh, give a, a caution to the Gentile believers not to be arrogant against the Jews, not to be prideful. Oh, we must be pretty good. We, we're now inheriting the promises. Huh, yeah. As Paul says, if God could take the natural, natural olive branches out, and prune them off of the tree and graft in you Gentiles, you wild olive branches, he can easily take you out and attach the natural branches back in. Now, that he, he's in that warning, it's stated as kind of a hypothetical, a maybe, you know, be warned. Same God that did this can undo it and reinstitute the Jews. But in these passages where he's talking about what will their fullness be? What will their ingathering be? And he says, but life from the dead. He's not talking now about a hypothetical or a maybe or a warning. He's talking about what he believes will indeed take place. And if they're falling away, if they're cutting off from the, the, the olive tree meant the salvation of the world, that salvation has come to the world, What will their inclusion mean but life from the dead? Paul is actually using somewhat eschatological language here, pointing us to a fullness of blessing that comes in the fullness or the reattachment of these natural olive branches. 
When he talks about wild branches and natural branches, but there's still one tree. There's still one tree. And I would say, yes, that tree could represent the covenantal stream through history, but I think ultimately that tree represents Christ. You do not have life if you are not attached to that tree. In Christ, all the promises of God are what? Yes. Amen. And it is only by being attached, grafted in, or a natural branch growing out of that tree that we have life and nourishment. Some of those branches have been trimmed off. Wild olive branches have been grafted in. But Paul implies very strongly here that those natural branches will one day be brought back in. I don't know how it's all going to work out. This is why Paul calls it a mystery. We don't know. That's what mystery means, something that's hidden from us. I don't know how these things will take place or how they, they will. I, I see things happening, and I, it, it's unavoidable that we will try to kind of make sense of what's going on in the world by what we think Scripture teaches us. Mm, sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. But here's what Paul continues to say. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. And again, he's writing mainly to Gentile believers here. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Notice Paul's reference to the covenant and to the promises. God's purpose in election and God's revealed will in his covenants will come to pass. When Paul writes, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, he's saying this, the fall of Israel, the apparent apostasy, it is an apostasy, the lack of faith, the unbelief, there is a partial hardening, and it is not permanent, a partial hardening. And then again, the implication that when the fullness of the Gentiles is, has come in, there will be a return also of God's grace to Israel. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, many commentators at this point say the Israel in this verse, verse 26, is referring to the whole church. And I can see that. I can see that. It's the whole church. It's the whole body of elect Jews and Gentiles. That's not a wrong interpretation. But remember, the context is here where Paul is definitely dealing with Israel, with the Jewish people. And what is God's work there? So I think when he says, and so all Israel will be saved, and then he takes quotes from two Old Testament passages. Uh, one of them is um, uh, from uh, 
where was my note here? Isaiah 59, 20, uh, when he, uh, he talks about the uh, removing uh, iniquity from Jacob. That's Isaiah 59, 20. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And then he quotes in verse 27, it seems that this quote is taken from Jeremiah 33, uh, 31, verse 34, and this will be my covenant when I take away their sins. And it's there where, through the prophet Jeremiah, God begins to show us what he calls the new covenant. And that goes on for some, for some time, but the new covenant, this is the covenant. So Paul is implying here that this is the way all Israel will be saved. Yes, the whole body of elect Jews and Gentiles, but in context, he's dealing specifically with the Jewish people. And this is why people like Samuel Rutherford, many of the Scottish Presbyterians, I would say unified, even our larger catechism hints at this when it says we are to pray for the calling of the Jews. And down through the ages, no matter what your eschatological opinion might be, your position pre-post or amillennial, why there have been a vast majority of people who have believed that God will one, a day, one, one day turn his grace back to the Jews, that there will be a great ingathering of Jewish people who indeed are elect from before the foundation of the world. But God has reattached those natural olive branches and brought them by the power of his word and spirit to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. I wish I had more time to dig into the covenants in the Old Testament, which are very clearly aimed at a rebuilding of Israel and Judah. In fact, the new covenant is framed in these words. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That implies somehow that this dead nation that, has, that in large part disappeared thousands of years ago, that there's still only a remnant today, God had them in view when he pronounced this covenant to Jeremiah. God's covenant stands sure. God, Paul writes in this same passage, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. Just like his love is unbreakable, his gifts and calling are irrevocable. You can't undo what God has said and established. I think, practically speaking, this means a lot to us. Because it would be a serious question if that person in the back of the congregation, when Paul was writing or reading this letter, says, what about the Jews? Well, if Paul would say, yeah, they're done, they're gone. And say, well, Paul, that completely undermines your argument about the unbreakable love of God. And Paul takes three chapters to explain why it doesn't. The gifts and calling of God, just like his love, is irrevocable and unbreakable. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We pray that you would give us understanding. There are many things that we do not understand, Lord, and we confess this. Many things that are beyond us. That's why Paul calls this a mystery. And we have some insights into this mystery, but there are still things we don't know and don't understand. We look at the scriptures and we try to formulate as best we can what the scriptures teach. But we do trust in you. We trust in your unfailing love. We trust in your covenants. We trust that even this, that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, not just true for the Jewish people, but true for us as well. For if they can be lost and beyond recovery, so can we. But we know that's not true. We know that can't happen. You are faithful, and you will keep your promises. For this we give thanks this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's uh, turn to our final hymn this evening. Um, I'm going uh, to read the postscript after our hymn. Hymn 404. 404. The Church's One Foundation. I said there was a postscript because Paul actually includes an incredible doxology at the end of all these things that he's been talking about. That's where he says this. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I'm going to stop there. What a beautiful passage and powerful, but it all comes at the end of this mystery that Paul is writing about. And he's saying, where does this all end up? To the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen? Amen. Amen. Go be blessed.